Okay, I grew up in a little town in Illinois. Now, Illinois is just one. It's not Illinois. It's Illinois. I grew up in a little town in Illinois. It's called Oregon. It's about 30 miles south of Rockford, Illinois. Not too far from Chicago, Illinois, which explains a lot about me, right? But in my, in my small town of about 3,500 people, there, were, uh, there weren't a lot of, of, of things to, to, to look at, I mean, that were captivating. <laughs> a lot more now that I'm older than when I was younger. I, I can go back now and appreciate more about the little town that I grew up in. But in that, in that little town, there was a dam. And, of course, um, it had water rushing over it. And, um, and on the Rock River, close to the dam were warning signs okay you follow me got this picture in your mind there were warning signs above the dam and below the dam don't get too close to the dam stop right here the dam is dangerous because if you get too close to the dam it'll suck you right into its into, into its, 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 what I want to say, its awful dynamic. And you'll drown. Over the course of the years that I lived in Oregon, Illinois, a few people, not a lot, but a few, chose to be autonomous. Now, that sounds like a disease, doesn't it? Autonomous. Sounds like a terrible disease, and actually, in this case, it is. Autonomous comes from two Greek words. I've used that word several times in the last several weeks. Autonomous. Two Greek words. Auto meaning self. And nomos is the Greek word for law. So when you put them together, it means... Self-law. Now, how does that apply to the dam and the warnings? Well, when you're living autonomously, according to self-law, you ignore all the warnings. Because you make the laws. You don't listen to the laws. You don't abide by the laws. You make the laws. And when, you, and when you ignore the warnings about the dam and you make your own laws, you're in terrible, terrible danger of drowning. So here's what's happening in Genesis chapter 1 versus Genesis chapter 11. People are living autonomously. Self-law apart from any governing authority. And of course, the ultimate governing authority is a person. One single person. Who's revealed himself in three distinct persons, but still one person. The Lord our God. Architect, Creator, designer, 
of the world. By virtue of who he is, he is the ultimate authority. But in our selfishness, in our self-centeredness, in our thinking that we know better than he does, instead of turning our face to him in dependence, we turn our back on him in independence. And inevitably experience what he promised would happen, the curse. So Genesis 1-11 to is really the story of trying to live independently of God and experiencing the curse, which ultimately means death and forever separation from God. We've got to backtrack just a little bit. In Genesis 11, the last few verses of that chapter, it talks about Abram's family. And Abraham, Abraham's, I, I, I told you that I was going to get this mixed up because Abra, Abraham at this point in the Bible is not Abraham, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use those two, those two. And I'm sorry for that. But Abra, Abram, he's Abram now is part of a family that's, uh, that's, that has a multiplicity of gods. They're polytheists. That means they, they, they worship many gods. And, and this family is not exempt from the curse. So they're experiencing the curse. And Genesis 11, 27 to 32 talks about this, this, this curse and, 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 and how people are, 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 because they live autonomous, autonomously, are subject to the curse. And there's death, and there's barrenness, and there's disappointment, and there's all, just all kinds of, 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 of results, consequences of turning our back on God. Well, God doesn't want us to live that way. God is not satisfied with our disobedience and our death. God could never be satisfied with, with, with the results of our turning our back on Him. He's just not that kind of God. He relentlessly pursues those who turn their back on Him. Some persist in it and suffer the consequences for it. Others turn back toward Him. And that's what Abram does. God chooses Abram out of, this, out of this death, out of this disappointment, and he speaks to him. And he makes him promises. And he says, I'm going to reverse the curse through you, Abram. And this, that, that's where we pick up the story in Genesis 12, 1 through 9. And we talked about this last week, but I want to review it quickly. Now the Lord said to Abram, so God's speaking. When God speaks, he's revealing himself. God speaks to Abram, go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I want you to go in faith. You don't see the land. You can't even, you can't even find it on Google Maps because that doesn't exist yet. 
There's no GPS, nothing like that. You have to depend totally on me. I want you to go from your land, from your level of comfort that you have, the level of convenience that you, that you have, from all of that, I want you to leave that and I want you to go to land and I will show you and, and, and I will establish you in an Eden-like existence because that's what God wants for us. He wants for us to live in an Eden-like existence. He wants us to flourish. He wants us to thrive. That's what God wants for us. And that's the direction that he's taking us. Even today, his children are headed toward flourishing like you've never flourished before. Even if death interrupts it. Because in Christ, death is conquered. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. See the, the use of the word blessing in contrast to the curse? I'm going to use you, Abram, to reverse the curse. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that has happened because Abram is the ancestor of Jesus Christ. And in Christ, and therefore in Abraham, we've been blessed. And we'll talk about that in just a second. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. That's his nephew. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who would appear to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east side of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And then he continued journeying on south toward the Negev. So what's happening here is Abraham's taking, uh, taking God at his word, believing in the promise, and going throughout the land. Well, what he encounters is a couple of things. A couple of things. The first thing he encounters, we talked about last week, he encounters the land being occupied. So God promised him the land, but it was occupied. So it's not completely his. There are already people there. That's an obstacle. Second obstacle, you have to go back up to the last part of chapter 11. God has promised to make Abraham a great nation, but Sarah's barren. She can't have kids. So explain this to me. How do you become a great nation if you can't even start your own family? Another obstacle. Now let me interrupt myself and read you a verse from the New Testament. Just to make a connection between Abram and us. Through Jesus Christ, his descendant, his most famous descendant, 
in our Lord and our Savior. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Listen. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If I asked you today, those of you who are in Christ, do you feel blessed? What would you say? Oh, don't, don't, you, don't you think if I ask that question really seriously, let's be honest, okay? Don't you think if I ask that question today of everyone that there'd be, a, there'd be multiple answers? And the reason that there'd be multiple answers is because we're not all evaluating by the same standard. He's more blessed than me because. She's more blessed than me because. But that's not what this passage says. This passage says that we're all blessed with the same blessings. And it's all of them, not just a few of them. We're all adopted into Christ because we're justified in Christ. We all have the same inheritance. We're all headed toward the same place, the same destination. A man named Erwin Lutzer wrote a book once, You're Richer Than You Think. I just want to echo that. You're richer than you think. We're all blessed in Christ. But here's the thing. Being blessed, like Abraham was, being blessed in Christ, doesn't prevent us from being affected by the problems in the world. You get that? Being blessed in Christ doesn't prevent us from being affected by the problems in the world. Jesus, God is addressing the curse, and God has a plan to reverse the curse, but the plan hasn't been consummated yet. There's not been a completion to the plan, which is really not a completion. It's really an opening up into something even greater, so it's a new beginning. But it hasn't been accomplished yet. It's in the process of being accomplished. It was in the beginning, it, it was in the beginning stages in Abraham's life. In Christ's life, it was, it was, it was fulfilled, it was guaranteed. But until it's consummated, until it's complete, until we start that new age, and I mean that in the best possible sense, the new age with Christ the King ruling on the earth, the curse still has its effects. And none of us escape that. We're blessed. We're blessed beyond, beyond what we can possibly comprehend. We're blessed beyond what we can imagine in Jesus Christ. 
I mean, we could think a lot about being a child of God. We could think a lot about that every day, and we still wouldn't exhaust all the, all the richness, all the beauty, all the wonder and awe of being in Christ as His child. And yet the world still affects us, and the problems in the world, it still affects us. And being blessed by God doesn't eliminate personal problems. Now, I know that you know that. But I also know that we need to be reminded of that. And that's why the Bible reminds us of that very thing. And it does so often. Now we pick up in verse 10. Already we've seen two obstacles. Sarah's barren, and God's going to address that, and the land is occupied, and God will address that. By the way, it's occupied with those who would be Israel's worst enemies in the days to come. Abraham's family's worst enemies. Obstacle number three. which will lead into obstacle number four. There was a famine in the land. There was a famine in the land. Are you kidding me? Seriously? Abraham, I want you to go from this very comfortable place where you will inherit your father's wealth and hang on to the wealth that you already have in a place called Haran. I want you to, I, I, you know, I want you to leave that, God says to Abraham, and I'll, and I'll bring you to a new land, a land that flows with milk and honey, <laughs> a land where I'll bless you. And he's not there very long before he experiences drought. How would you feel? God, you brought me to Wasco. No, I'm kidding. Wasco's been great. God, you... What are you thinking, God? What are you thinking? You ever want to ask him that? Be honest. What are you thinking? I have expectations, Lord. <laughs> what are you thinking? There was a famine in the land. That doesn't nullify the blessing. That doesn't nullify God's intent. That doesn't stop God in his tracks. Oops, how did this happen? <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that's not, we're, we're dealing with God here. That, that doesn't happen. God never says oops.
But listen, this is important. This is really important. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Now that was natural. And here's why. I think that those of you who went to visit Israel found this out, probably. You probably found this out at, at some point. If, 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 I mean, maybe, maybe you saw this, the effects of this, but that, that region of the world gets about nine inches of rain a year at the most. And sometimes during, the, during the, the winter months, it doesn't rain at all, what we would consider winter months. There's no rain. If there's no rain, if there's drought, that means there's no food. And if you're in a place where there's no food, now see, it's hard for us to, it's hard for us to get this because, because if we need food, where do we go? You, you, you tried new Tropicana yet? It's pretty cool. It's got a lot of good stuff there. I mean, we just go to the grocery store, right? Food is available to us. I mean, if I get hungry, I go over and look in the refrigerator, and there's nothing there. We need to stock that thing for the pastor. But we just go, but food's, food's accessible to us. For them, it wasn't. For Abraham, it wasn't. Now, Abraham's responsible for a lot of people, right? He's got to have food. So if it's not raining and there's no food, what do you do? You go to Egypt. Egypt's the breadbasket of the world. The difference between Egypt and Israel is this, the Nile River. The Nile River floods its banks every year. That creates very fertile soil where crops can be grown. Egypt is the breadbasket of the world. Abram takes all those who belong to him and he goes to Egypt to sojourn there. Now the Bible doesn't fault Abraham for this. He's not, there's, there's no, there's no, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with going to a place to feed your family. You might want to consult God first before you do something like this. But the Bible doesn't scold Abram for this. He's still blessed. God still loves him. He's moved out of the promised land to sojourn in Egypt, and he's got a problem when he does. He, he'll escape the famine. He'll have food. And in fact, Abram will get rich as a result of this. But he's got a problem. And the problem is, when he goes into Egypt, essentially, he has no civil rights. When he goes into Egypt, he's not protected by the law. There is no police force. There are no courts for Abram to make his appeal in case something goes wrong. He has no civil rights. All of justice was taken care of by the family. So he goes into a very dangerous place. And when he does... He has a way of thinking about that. Let's go into that. 
So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, to spend time there as an immigrant. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Now what wife doesn't want to hear that? Wow, Abraham, you got such a smooth tongue. But listen, it goes on. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then, because you're so beautiful, so attractive, so desirable, they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Because the Egyptians have, have, that, um, have that disease. Autonomy. Long ago, they had abandoned God in His design. So the Egyptians followed the pattern that, that Eve established in the garden. And Adam. The pattern that Adam and Eve established in the garden, which makes our lives sometimes very dangerous makes life in this world very treacherous. The pattern is this. See what you want, want it, take it, devour it. That's the pattern. Take what you want. If it looks good. The problem with that is you can't just have everything that you see and everything that you want because some things are forbidden. The fruit on the tree, that one tree was forbidden. A married man's wife is forbidden to another man. unless you're a law unto yourself, unless you make the rules. And Pharaoh and the Egyptians made the rules for themselves. You follow? Abraham is going to Egypt to survive, but there's trouble. There's trouble there. There's the potential for, for, for terrible trouble. So he tells his wife to lie. Well, it's a half lie. But a half lie is, well, there's no such thing, right? They'll kill me, but they'll let you live. What's he thinking? Well, let me suggest this. He's thinking about as naturally as we all think. <laughs> how do I protect myself? When there's danger, how do I protect myself? What is our thinking? How do we think? When there's danger, I protect myself. And how do I protect myself when there's danger? Well, I scheme, I plan, I strategize, and I carry out the plan, right? Seems natural, doesn't it? 
How many are willing to excuse Abraham for lying? Don't raise your hand. That could be an indictment. But how many of you think it's, man, what else is he going to do? Well, let me ask you, what else is he going to do? Well, how about this? Listen. How about going to the one who just told you that you were going to be a great nation? Does a famine nullify that promise? Does danger nullify that promise? There's something else that doesn't nullify that promise as well, and we'll talk about that in a second. They'll let you live, but they'll kill me. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. See, his, think about his thinking. His thinking is wrong here. Who controls life and death? When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Egypt saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And so the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house and became a part of his harem. Now what's the problem there? I think, I think, I think we're all ready for this. If Pharaoh has sex with her and she conceives, that nullifies the promise. The promise came through Abraham and his wife. Abraham isn't just, he doesn't know this, but he's, just, he's, he's, not, he's not just protecting himself and, and, and compromising to do it. He put our salvation at risk. He put God's plan at risk to protect himself. I don't think at this point he understands all of the implications of his action. But he will. It all would have fallen apart, maybe. So Pharaoh took Sarah into his house and for her sake, now listen to this. <laughs> Does lying ever profit us? Do you ever profit from a lie? 
<laughs> well, it depends on what you mean by prophet. Look at this. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep. Now, you could translate that into stocks and bonds and, and all, kinds of, uh, all kinds of assets. That, uh, that in this case, Abraham's assets are not the, maybe the way that we would define asset. But for Abram, in his context, this was money. This was as good as money. So he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys and male servants and female servants, female donkeys and camels. He got rich from his lie. Is that a good reason to lie? And what is a lie? Well, it's wrong because it's it's wrong because because it doesn't reflect our image and likeness. It, our, our, our being created in God's image and likeness. Because God would never lie. How secure do you think you'd feel <laughs> if you thought for one second that God was a liar? How stable would your life be if you suspected God was a liar. Wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't that create all kinds of chaos? God is dependable, though. God has ultimate integrity. He's infinite in, in, in that sense. He's truthful to an infinite degree. I mean, he's, he's never going to lie. He's never going to deceive When we lie, in this case, like Abraham, what we're saying is, God, we can't trust you. You're not trustworthy. We have to figure this out on our own. And in this case, it was lucrative. Abraham got one dimension of the blessing from his lie, but it wasn't a good thing to do. Verse 17. Here's the climax of this story. The high point, which is a low point for Pharaoh. And by the way, this, this pattern is repeated in Scripture as well. God's people look back on this and it, and, it, and it stabilizes them. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh for, for, for a time the Lord made Pharaoh's life absolutely miserable. And who knows what it was? God doesn't seem to think that it's important to tell us specifically what those afflictions were. But God the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. 
So Pharaoh called and said, what is this you have done to me? Now here is the pagan criticizing the believer. What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? In other words, Pharaoh has a higher moral standard than Abraham does. Why'd you lie to me? Why'd you feel compelled to lie? What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say that she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. I said there was an additional obstacle here that doesn't stop God. Even my worst decisions that create all kinds of negative circumstances can't stop God from blessing me. And stop God from blessing the world. Too many of us, including me, rise and fall on failure. Thinking that if we fail, and we will, that that's the end of it. God can't possibly deal with, bless a failure. God doesn't have any problem with regard to his plan and our failure. You can't stop God. You can't stop God's good intentions flowing toward you. You can't do that. You can't interrupt his plan so as to put a halt to it. You can't sin, turn your back on God to the point that he won't love you anymore. Abraham's lie didn't stop God. Just like famine didn't stop God. Just like barrenness didn't stop God. It won't stop God. Just like famine won't stop God. You can't stop God. You just can't. Nothing stops God. Now, isn't that incredibly comforting? And there's another dimension to it. 
God uses that failure. God uses that failure to teach the father of faith how to have faith. God uses failure to deepen our faith. Erwin Lutzer also wrote another book. Failure the back door to success. See, what Abraham's going to learn and what we need to learn is this, that God can be trusted. God can be trusted during times of drought. God can be trusted when things look impossible. God can be trusted when there's danger ahead. God can be trusted when we screw up and mess up everything. God can be trusted. We can trust God. And we're going to move through this, this, this story as God reveals himself to Abraham and to us. And we're going to see, we're going to witness this, how Abram learns to trust God. And in the process, our own faith in our Lord Jesus is going to be deepened. And we're going to learn that we can trust God no matter what. Isn't that a wonderful thing to learn? Well, if you're his child, that's where you're headed. I don't know everything that's going on in your life, and I will say this, 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 I will make this statement many, many times as your pastor. I don't know everything that's going on in your life. And I'm not sure that I'd want to know. But I do know this. That if you belong to Him, that one thing He's doing is deepening your faith in Him. And He will not stop doing that until that work is complete. So bottom line, Stop fighting it and trust Him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You can be trusted. We thank You too that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in our problems, in our struggles, in the adversity that we face doesn't nullify any of that. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.